welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined always by Frank Cagliano. How are you doing, Frank? I'm great, David. Thank you very much. Good morning to you. All right. So, uh, very recently, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops has taken steps that would deny communion to politicians who support abortion rights. Uh, and this seems to be uh, particularly targeting uh, President Biden, who, of course, is a, a, a devout uh, Catholic who regularly attends Mass and is also a uh, strong supporter of abortion rights. Uh, so we thought we would take this this opportunity to, to sort of talk about the, the relationship between uh, church and state and, and how the two affect each other or, or not, uh, and the wall of separation such that it may be between them. Yes, I mean, there's important, there's an additional um, bit of context for this as well, which is traditionally, whether we can say traditional or not, uh, in the recent past, this is an invented tradition, mm. uh, new presidents or vice presidents have spoken at, at the graduation of the University of Notre Dame in Indiana, which of course is one of the leading Catholic universities mm. in the United States. And if this tradition had been followed, then Joe Biden would have been expect would have been expected to give the commencement address at Notre Dame last month in in May. He declined to do so. It's not entirely clear from the news reports exactly what happened. I don't know whether Biden, who's spoken at Notre Dame in the past, um, told them not to invite him hmm. or whether he was invited and declined. What is clear is there was a uh, petition signed by more than 4,000 members of the Notre Dame community opposing the prospect of Biden speaking at commencement because of his views on abortion, among other things, and basically calling his Catholicism. You described him as devout. The people signing this petition don't quite believe he's as devout as you do, David. Uh, and, and so in, in, in response, I, I suspect that what happened was in mm -hmm. response to this petition and not wanting to have a controversy over this, that, that President Biden probably uh, declined mm -hmm. or, or preempted, the, preempted the invitation so he wouldn't have to decline it or place the president of Notre Dame uh, in, in difficulty uh, caught between hmm. uh, one element of his community and the president of the United States. As I said, it's not entirely clear what happened, but there's a long tradition of U.S. presidents speaking at Notre Dame. And it is interesting that Biden, of course, is only the second Catholic president of the United States after John Kennedy. Uh, so you would have thought it's, it's a match made in heaven. And he has spoken at Notre Dame in the past. But there are echoes of the political debate, I think, that... Um, uh, associated with this, this mm. statement by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops as well. Yeah, well, also sort of recently on a different sort of theological uh, point of the spectrum, uh, the recent elections for the Southern Baptist Convention were, were held last week, and they were similarly divisive about, you know, how political the Southern Baptist Convention, which of course has often been very political as a religious organization, but whether they're going to go for the very right-wing or only sort of the moderately right-wing uh uh, you know, slate of candidates, uh, so, so all of which I think speaks to the, this intersection between religion and politics in this particular moment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this isn't only about Catholics in the United States. I mean, I mean, it, it spans the religious spectrum and arguably also the political spectrum. Mm. Uh, so, so I mean, I, I think the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops statement is uh, not totally unexpected, but it is pretty unprecedented. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, interesting. Yeah. You know, the 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 discourse that the Catholic bishops were having in Southern Baptist conventions were having the issues that they were important to them were actually remarkably similar, which is astounding given how theologically disparate and historically uh, antagonistic those two groups 
have been. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is, we might get to this later, but I'll make the observation now because it follows on from your comment. One of the things that's interesting, if you study the history of religion in the United States and its antecedents is, of mm. course, Protestants and Catholics for decades and indeed centuries, depending on how you want to time things or date things, um, were at odds mm. and often violently so. You know, the, the, the KKK of the 1920s was not just racist and anti-Semitic, it was also anti-Catholic sure. and fundamentally Protestant. And in the mid-19th century, there were a whole raft of anti-Catholic riots and, and legislation targeting Catholics right, and all right, that Right, right, the know-nothing party, etc. But, but what we see in the second half of the 20th century, and really in the past 40 years, is a coming together of conservative Catholics and conservative, often evangelical Protestants in ways that would have been unthinkable to their grandparents. But mm. I think their common political values and the fact that they are people of faith, I mm. think that they've emphasized the fact that, okay, we may not agree on each other in, the in the theological terms, terms, but at least we're people of faith who believe in God and believe in faith. And in this battle over separation of church and state, we're on the same side. Yeah. So there's been this kind of coming together in the past 50 the years, years that's yeah. really unprecedented. Yeah, to be sure. History. I mean, I mean, think about I mean the... You mentioned Biden being the second Catholic president. The first Catholic president, you know, John Kennedy, when he was running, really had to sort of fight that. And we'll talk about that maybe in a couple of minutes, fight this sort of fear that, you know, a Catholic could not be a good president. But one of the people who was adamantly opposed to Kennedy's election uh, was Billy Graham, who, who campaigned behind the scenes and in public against Kennedy in 1960 because he tell our listeners who Billy Graham oh, Billy Graham was. sorry was the probably the most prominent evangelical uh, minister in the United States uh, in the well really for most of the 20th century he had a, a very long life and a very deep influence on not only American religious life he was famous for his religious crusades he was also very famous for his relationship with uh, American political leaders uh, he was you know, a counselor to Eisenhower. He was later a counselor to Johnson and to, to Nixon. Um, you know, people who have a very different sort of political uh, worldviews. But uh, you know, Billy Graham was was uh, you know uh, a confidant of all of them. So uh, you know, probably the the most prominent American religious figure in the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, and nineteen seventies. Um, you know, somebody who who was really able to sort of speak to that that religious revival that happened in those decades um you know and billy graham's opposition to kennedy you know seems very much at odds where, where you know, billy graham as a baptist was pushing very much against kennedy saying that was uh, you know uh, uh, it was impossible for for kennedy to, to be a a president of the united states because of his, his catholic face that, that compared to that to this moment we're in now where those two groups seem to be very much more in, in alignment that's right i mean so to a certain extent that's the the high watermark, if you will, of the old sectarian politics in American, or sectarian politics in American religion, where where there was a kind of fundamental yeah. division between Protestants of a certain stripe and Catholics. Now I should point out after they got after Kennedy got elected, uh, Billy Graham and Kennedy played golf together, and then they turned out to get along pretty well after that. But uh, during the campaign, they were uh, Billy Graham was actively hostile. Uh, Organized conventions against Kennedy. All right, let's go. Let's go back a couple centuries. Yeah. to provide some context here. Um, you know, when we think about the state of of religion, uh, say, like prior to the American Revolution, how, what was the relationship between the state and 
the various colonies. And obviously there there are thirteen colonies and then a bunch more if you add the, the other British colonies. Twenty six if you if, count them all. Well, if you count them all. Catch um, them all like Pokemon. <laughs> and there's 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 a there's a different story in each of them a little bit, but but broadly speaking, right, what was the relationship or what were the different kinds of relationships that existed? Yeah, I mean prior this to the this is complicated because there are so many different versions. But if one had to generalize most of the colonies, the British colonies in uh, mainland North America and the Caribbean have some sort of religious foundation, um, and in and and justified colonization in some sense on religious grounds. Often, either because they were uh, proposing to bring Christianity to the heathen to indigenous mm. peoples, or to forestall the the expansion of French and Spanish, that is, Catholic colonies in the New World. So they were doing God's work. They were doing the work of spreading Protestantism in some way. This is usually, if you read the colonial charters of, of most of the colonies, there's usually some kind of language in there mm. um, to that effect. Different colonies took this language uh, in different directions. Uh, as a rule... If, if we're talking about mainland North America, the further north you go, the more seriously they seem to take this language. And so the, 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 the classic example, of course, is Massachusetts Bay, which is found, well, the Pilgrims found Plymouth before that in 1620, but in 1630 when the, when the Puritans arrived in Massachusetts Bay, the, the New England colonies are definitely imbued with a strong um, Puritan character, and they have state churches. Church and state are the same in these colonies. And this is, the distinction between them doesn't make any sense. The the, the migrants in the so-called Great Migration to Massachusetts in 1630 were Puritans. They were fleeing England. This is the story of religious freedom. We we get one version of this where they they were coming to America to seek religious freedom. Okay, that's... Yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it's religious freedom for them, not for anybody exactly. else. Yeah, right? yeah, precisely, precisely. So, so, so they would, um, you know, burn heretics at the stake. Kind of but, stuff. but their yeah. goal, theoretically, was, and, and the name Puritan comes from this, was to purify the Anglican Church, which was mm. the state church in Britain, in England rather, at the time, um, and to return. Which is why, when the English Civil War breaks out a decade and a half later, many do return. There's a kind of remigration from Massachusetts and other New England colonies back to to England. Um, so they definitely have a religious foundation. They, as you suggest, David, prove quite adept at persecuting people who dissent from them, even though they themselves were dissenters. Most famously, Roger Williams mm. will be expelled from the colony for his heretical views. Roger Williams is one of the few. Characters in the 17th century world is the world view of people in the 17th century is so alien from ours, mm. and they are so unlike us that when we reach back to the 17th century to try and understand the modern world, I think it's a fool's errand because it really is a different cosmology, a different way. Theirs is a completely different way of understanding the world from ours. But what Roger Williams is often an outlier for this because he is somebody who, in the early 17th century, mm. is preaching a form of, of religious freedom that seems both pretty sincere and pretty modern. I mean, when you, when we, Roger Williams is, is, is okay. You're giving me well, a quizzical man, he, look. He, he, did, he, he did and he didn't, I think. Because there's, there's ways in which, you know, he, he, uh, his opposition to having a, an established church was, he said, look, I think there's a right religious review and a wrong religious review. I want you to have the right religious review because you have 
made that decision willingly, not because you feel compelled to do so. So I'm going to say you are wrong and I'm going to persuade you you are wrong and persuade you to join my the, the true faith. So I think he was sort of a religious dogmatist, but he, he, he went about it in a very different way than, than the people in Massachusetts did. Um, who are going to burn Quakers. Right, you know, so he wanted to have the Quakers so he could tell them they were wrong. Um, you know, and, and his, you know, Rhode Island was famous for this, you know, separation of church and state uh, by not having an established church unlike the other New England colonies. But for Roger Williams, the argument there was he was not worried about the church influencing the state, which is often how people think about church and state Today, he was worried about the corrupting effect of politics upon the purity of religious belief. I think that's a really important point because that's one of the key elements, I think, behind the First Amendment. When we, when we get to the separation mm. of church and state in a couple of minutes, the separation of church and state is not just about protecting the state from the church. It's about protecting the church from the state. Right. And I think that's a legacy of Williams. And that's something that we often forget in this discourse today. Right. Going ahead, okay, probably the most tolerant of these colonies is probably Pennsylvania, because although it's got, we can't talk about a religious, the Quakers aren't establishment, but they are the establishment mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania, but Quakerism in the 17th century really is founded on toleration in mm -hmm. a way that Puritanism and different forms of Calvinism were not. And so the Quakers are more tolerant, I think it's probably the most tolerant of the mainland colonies. Mm -hmm. Um, as a result, they got a huge influx of Presbyterians from from the north of Ireland in the in the seven in the eighteenth century, who aren't necessarily the most tolerant people in the eighteenth century uh, Atlantic world. Uh, so, so Pennsylvania is this curious mix. As you go south, uh, basically, what you get by the eighteenth century is almost all the colonies have some form of state-supported religious establishment. Okay. So in Virginia, and Virginia is important, for, will become important for reasons we're about to discuss. In Virginia, where the Anglican Church is, you know, the State Church of England is the State Church of Virginia as well. The Anglican Church is supported with taxpayer money. They can pay in tobacco. There's a dispute about that. You know, what, what sure. the actual currency is, that doesn't really matter to us. But there's an established hierarchical Anglican Church in Virginia, for example, that's supported by taxpayers. There are problems with this because Anglican priests are supposed to return to England to be to be ordained, and 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 that there are practical problems with that. There are problems. There's not a bishop. Yeah, yeah and, and you, you actually chuck out everything you think you know about American religion um, uh, in terms of uh, stereotypes about today. This is often a shock to mm. our British students. So it's the Northerners who are the religious fundamentalists, Protestant fundamentalists, and Southerners are kind of meh. So there's this, you know, the, the, the Anglican church for, church, for example, in Virginia is important, but it's important socially. It's important because it, it gives kind of coherence to society and people, you know, people like you know, Jefferson and Washington, great planters have roles as vestrymen mm -hmm. and all kinds of things like this. But, but that's in, to signify their wealth and power rather than their theology. That's right. That's right. So, so. Southerners, at least for much of the 18th century, we might talk about the Great Awakening, um, wear their religiosity lightly, mm. whereas Northerners are the ones who take seem to be more devout and taking it more seriously in the in this in this era. But the point being, and in terms of this, I realize this is all just prelude. During the colonial period, what we get are some form of state churches in most of the colonies. What's important, though, David, mm. I think, is. They don't all have the same one. There's a plurality of different 
They're all Protestant. That's what's important in, in the 18th century context. Uh, Catholics make up about 1% of the colonial American population. Might be a little more, but it's Catholics and Jews are there in very, very small numbers at, at, before the revolution. And uh, so they're, they're all Protestant, but they're not all in agreement on each other. So you get congregational churches in New England, you get a whole mix, Dutch Reformed and so on, and so in New York, for example. Uh, you've got Quakers and Presbyterians in Pennsylvania. You've got Anglicans further south. It's a, there's no one predominant denomination across the colonies, although they're all broadly under the Protestant umbrella. So I think now, that, that, well, I, that I think that you know, so that brings us to the revolution, which I think is you know a moment where you've got part of the change from this, and you know, part of this has to do with uh, states, newly independent states, making new state constitutions and and changing their relationship with the Church of England because the Church of England is headed by the King of England and and if they are rejecting the King of England as their uh, you know, political overlord, they're really rejecting that as a, as a, a, uh, a religious statement as well. So you have sort of the disestablishment of some of these state churches starting in 1776 and, and sort of continuing over the next several decades afterwards. It happens in different places at different times. Um, which sort of brings us to, 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 to both the Constitution and to, to your man, Thomas Jefferson, who was involved in, uh, well, I guess first with the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom. Do you want to talk about, this is the Thomas Jefferson section well, for, for listeners. <laughs> yes, yeah, so if you want to Weekly the Thomas Jefferson. Uh, well, actually, before we get to that, I, mean, I think you, raise, you make a good point about constitution making. Because you're right, all the states have to adopt their own constitutions. And we don't think of state constitutions as being terribly interesting today, although they are important. And, Some of us do, but well, very few people do. Okay. Yes, David made a face when I said that, listeners. <laughs> David, I, I, I'm sorry to break the this to you. 1868 constitutions, I think, are really important <laughs> to understand. But anyway, you're, you are right in as much as most Americans don't think as much about the state constitutions as the federal one. Right. So one of the issues that arises is whether there needs to be whether there need to be so-called test oaths hmm. uh, in these constitutions, whether office holders, usually the governor, but also often other state-level office holders, need to attest to their either their faith hmm. or, in some cases, the fact whether they're Christians or not. There's an interesting debate that goes on in Massachusetts about whether the governor has to be a Christian or not. Mm -hmm. And they have two versions of the Massachusetts Constitution. There's one adopted in 1778 and another in 1780. And, and this is a, one of the major differences between the two. You get this weird outcome in Massachusetts where if memory serves, the governor does not need to be a Christian, but there is state support for religion in Massachusetts. So Massachusetts will have a state church until the 1830s. And in some of the debates about the Massachusetts Constitution, you get people say, well, that means the governor could be a Muslim. Highly unlikely exactly, in Massachusetts exactly. in 1780. Um, but, but people were re you know, taking it to, to that extent if you remove the, this test. So the, mm. the, in all the states, you get this debate about tests, which is interesting, which anticipates a lot of this. Then we get on to Virginia and Jefferson. And look, we give Jefferson a hard time, and he deserves to have a hard time. And a lot of time, in a lot of cases, this is one area where I'm going to kind of come come to come to TJ's defense and say he's on the side of the angels, even, oh, though, even, though, he, <laughs> even though he didn't believe in angels, angels. <laughs> because he I, in 1776, after the Declaration of Independence is adopted, Jefferson returns to Virginia. 
to help reform uh, and rewrite the laws of Virginia, which is necessary because if Virginia adopts a new constitution, they also adopt a new legal code. And he's very, very interested in this. And in the raft of legislation that Jefferson writes is something called the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. Now, he writes it in the late 1770s. It's not actually adopted until 1786. And at that point, Jefferson is not in the United States. He's in France as a diplomat. And his protege and pal, James Madison, is the one who ushers it through the Virginia House of Delegates. But he's the main author of the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. And the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom unequivocally separates calls for the separation of church and state in the newly independent state of Virginia. And it's the first time really in certainly in the history of the United States and its antecedents, but arguably in the Atlantic world, at least in the modern era, when we get such an unequivocal separation of church and state. And so all church support, sorry, all state support for the church, the Anglican church, now Episcopal Church, mm. for the reasons you said, in terms of independence, we don't have to worry about that. All of that's removed as of this, as of the adoption of this uh, Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. And Jefferson will cite this as one of the, his three most yeah. important achievements on his gravestone. This is the thing he's really More important than being of. president. Much more important than being president. He will send... The, he has copies of the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom uh, printed, and he, and he circulates among his kind of Enlightenment friends around Europe. Um, this, this is a kind of landmark in the history of church-state relations in the United States. I think that's, that's, this, is, this is a bold claim for Jefferson that's actually true. Hmm. I, I think that's, and, and he recognized it as such during his lifetime. And Jefferson was committed David's pouring coffee. That's the sound of your people. Yes. He's got fresh coffee. <laughs> uh, and, and Jefferson was, was highly committed to this. Uh, he believed that, that, that state churches were engines of tyranny and would oppress people. And therefore, this was, this was a crucial reform that had to be made. And this will be the model for the First Amendment. You could say, well, it doesn't really matter. Okay, what they what, what they what was done in Virginia in 1786, what's the big mm. deal? Well, it's the fact it's unprecedented, but also because Madison, of course, will be one of the main architects of the Constitution, but not only the Constitution, but also the, the Bill, Bill of Rights. Rights. Sure. And we get this language of the separation of church and state embedded in the First Amendment. And so this is, there's a direct line really from the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom and the First Amendment. And the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of speech, but also separation of church and state in the United States, is crucial to the subsequent development of American culture and American political culture, especially with regard to, and religious culture for that matter. Is that, is that overstated? You know, no, I, I, think, I think that's, you know, one of the things I think is also happening is other states are having similar conversations at the same sure. time about, about the disestablishment of state churches. Uh, you know, when we get to the, the Constitution itself, we've got, uh, you know, the, you mentioned the religious test case. That's one of the places where, few places where religion appears in the Constitution as it was drafted in Philadelphia where in Article 6 they say there can be no religious test for holding federal office. It doesn't prohibit religious tests for holding state offices, but for federal offices. Um, and then obviously, shortly thereafter, we get, we get the First Amendment, um, which guarantees, the, among other freedoms, the freedom of, of religion. Um, exactly what that meant in, in the context, though, of you know, the late 18th century, when you still have some states with established churches, 
how that sort of fits in together, you know, that it seems to be some tension there? Yeah, I mean, I think an, an important element of this, which I didn't um, mention, but I should have, uh, is that a lot of the support and the agitation for disestablishment, for disestablishing the Anglican Church in Virginia, comes from people of faith. Mm. It comes particularly from Baptists and Quakers uh, who are petitioning the government. There are dozens and dozens of petitions uh, to the government of Virginia from Baptists and Quakers calling for religious freedom and separation of church and state mm. because they say, why should we have to pay taxes to a church we don't attend and we and in, whose tenets we don't believe in? Sure. And so they were making the case that it was they were being oppressed or theoretically were being oppressed because they were being unfairly taxed to support a religious establishment they didn't believe in. So what we see here, and this is this is crucial in the history of the separation of church and state within the United States, is we see this weird alliance, if you will, or seemingly weird to us, between somebody like Jefferson, who was certainly, let's say, idiosyncratic in his own personal religious beliefs. He's the guy who did a cut-and-paste job on the Bible when he was president. We can talk about that if you want. But you know, we, the, the kind of enlightenment, rational, the, the kind of enlightened um, uh, approach to religion, emphasizing rationality and so on and so forth, and people of quite fervent religious faith allying together mm. in favor of the separation of church and state because they didn't want one denomination to be put ahead of another. And I think that's a key element to all of this. So we're back to the plurality of churches in America, and that's and that's especially true right after independence. Yep, when we talk about a state church, what would the National Church of the United States be in 1787? We'd have we they would have had a civil war about that. that exactly. <laughs> and in fact, Jefferson said, "Look, state religion leads to war. It leads to oppression of people. You get you know." You He's get looking this, back on the 17th yeah. century in Europe, and yeah, you get inquisitions, you get rivers of blood, all this kind of stuff. I mean, he's using this kind of rhetoric, and so this is a step forward. But again, it's important, and I should have said this in my original comment that people of faith, representing denominations that were on the out, mm. support this, and so it's very interesting. Uh, we began our we began our comments today with the U.S. Uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops and the Southern Baptist Leadership Conference. Uh, both of these organizations, both of those religions uh, or, or denominations were minority sects in the beginning in America and benefited from religious, the separation of church and state and religious freedom. Even if they're uh, 240 years on, their uh, descendants are interested in blurring that line. Well, in part because they've got a lot of power now. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're back to the Puritans of Massachusetts. You know, well, we came for religious freedom. Now we've got power. We'll, we'll exercise it. Sure. So, you know, one of the thinking about religious freedom and sort of the separation of church and state, one of the moments or documents people often point to is this letter that, that Jefferson writes to the Danbury Baptists and. In 1802. Do you want to talk about, about what he says there and why that's important? Yes. Yeah. Now, um, this is a letter Jefferson writes, the Danbury Baptist Association from Danbury, Connecticut. Um, so what's interesting here is these are Baptists. Again, we're talking about Baptists, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, are actually pretty strong advocates for separation of church and state because they want, in most... Connecticut still has an established church. At this Connecticut point. still has an established church. And so they're basically writing them and say, hey, what are you going to do for us now that you're president? And, yeah. and Jefferson writes a letter. Now, he very carefully works on this letter. He didn't. This is not something he just 
you know, dashed off and sent saying, you know, thanks for your letter. <laughs> uh, and he asserts that there should be a wall of separation hmm. between church and state in the United States. And this is important because that is the usage that will enter American law, as we'll talk about subsequently. And this is... So this isn't just, oh, he happened to say that later, and this, this is a phrase, and it's, a, it's an interesting phrase. I, my reading of it, and I'm not unique in this, is he's, put, he's, if you will, putting flesh on the bones of the First Amendment and the background to the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, saying this is what it means. There must be a wall of, a wall of separation between church and state. Again, he's writing to people of a faith community and saying this, and his statement is as much, this is to protect you from the state as much as it is to protect the state or the rest of us from you. Mm. Okay. And so this is an important, you know, Jefferson had a lot of opinions about a lot of things, and some of them are dashed off and not fully thought out. Uh, the, 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 the 1802 letter to the Virginia Baptists, uh, sorry, the, the Danbury Baptists is, is, is not that. It's a, it's a clear statement. He recognizes he's president. He was there, you know, for the drafting of the Virginia statute. He's, 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 if you will, putting meat on the bones of just what this means. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, you mentioned entering American law, and that actually doesn't happen until more than 70 years later. Yeah, tell uh, us about that. We're in so your period now. Yes. Yeah, so this uh, is in a Supreme Court case called Reynolds versus the United States. Uh, George Reynolds was a uh, Mormon. He was a, actually fairly high up in the, the, the LDS church. Um, and uh, Mormons were interested in challenging uh, federal prohibition on bigamy. Uh, you know, I think in 1862, there was the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act that was passed by, by Congress. Uh, it's the same moral, by the way, as the Moral Land Grant Act and all these other kinds so of things. So not moral as in immoral. No, no, it's moral it's... as in just immoral, the congressman. Yeah. Right. So Congress had passed this law against, against bigamy uh, and, and, and um, targeting uh, Mormons. Mormon Church is trying to challenge that. Uh, this case worked its way up to the Supreme Court in 1878. Um, and Chief Justice uh, Morrison Waite is trying to understand in the defense that Reynolds posits, basically. He says, look, the First Amendment says that we have a freedom of religion. My religion says that I should have more than one wife. Therefore, this law that, that is Restricting my religious practice is unconstitutional. Um, so that's sort of the, the constitutional issue before the court. Uh, Morrison Waite, the Supreme, the Chief Justice, goes to George Bancroft, who was the, at that point the most prominent American historian, and, and to try to understand the relationship between church and state, to understand the First Amendment. Uh, and Bancroft basically told him, go read Jefferson. Jefferson will give you an understanding of what that relationship is meant to the founders. Uh, he does this, he goes into to an edited collection of Jefferson's papers, and he finds the letter to Danbury Baptist, and he quotes it in the decision. Um, and that's you know where that phrase enters into um, American um, sort of jurisprudence. And what you find is after that decision, a number of other Supreme Court cases uh, in which um, then again, cite that phrase drawing upon Jefferson's, drawing upon Jefferson's letter. Yeah, my, my argument to you, David, would be that's not an accident. That that was the that was Jefferson's intention in, in drafting that letter. 
I mean, he saw the future. No, 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 no. He didn't know the, how the future yeah, yeah. of the court was going to go, but he was trying to set the parameters for the debate mm. on the separation of church and state. So he would have been, I mean, I suppose the fact that it enters into mm. jurisprudence would have exceeded his expectations. Yeah. Um, but, but his intention was to set the parameters of the debate along those lines in writing that statement. For listeners who are curious, the court actually found against Reynolds and said, actually, no, that's, that your religious freedom does not mean you can violate the law. Um, and, but he actually ended up getting off because he had been sentenced to hard labor and the actual statute said you should only be sentenced to... Uh, Soft labor? <laughs> to imprisonment. <laughs> right. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, he got off on that. So the, 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 the actual outcome is complicated. Uh, but that phrase, the, the wall of, of church and state, appears over and over again in Supreme Court decisions especially in the 20th century. And there's a whole series of Supreme Court decisions about church and state uh, that involve schools, because the schools are the most sort of obvious manifestation of the state that gets involved in people's lives. What's the role of, of religion in schools? Uh, in 1947, there's Everson versus Board of Education. Uh, this is involving a, a New Jersey uh, law that, that allowed... Uh, taxpayers uh, are allowed uh, the, the state or a school district actually to reimburse parents of public and private school students who took public transit. And somebody sued saying, look, you have got kids going to religious schools who are getting reimbursed for the transit to school. Isn't that a violation of, of, of the First Amendment? I am supporting indirectly the, uh, through my tax dollars the Catholic uh, school in particular. Yeah, because kids were going to parochial school, yes, and, exactly. and their parents were getting. This and it was overwhelming the Catholic schools. Yeah, but but that that's an interesting case because that's the, if you will, when it enters the modern lexicon, mm. um, and and much of the uh, that is the the wall of separation metaphor, and it's been invoked a lot since, and then it's always in a wall with doors in it and all this yeah. kind of stuff. But the, the Everson case is, is significant, I think, David, because, well, it involves a. The alleged support for Catholic schools, which is interesting in the context of our discussion mm. today, or the, what the prompt for this discussion. The a majority of opinion that cites it, uh, majority opinion, I should say, that cites it is written by Hugo Black. And Black's an interesting character, great admirer of Jefferson, was a Klan member in the 20s, probably subscribed to the Klan's anti-Catholicism in the 20s. Mm. I think. Uh, yet Black found in favor of the school or this system that allowed the reimbursement of parents, he, the view of the majority of the court was these payments weren't being made to the schools, they weren't being made to the church, they were being made to the parents, parents so it's right. indirect and so it's okay. But Black used the phrase, he went back to Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist mm. to use to, to uh, cite the wall of separation between church and state and said that this basically, the wall wasn't being breached by this uh, practice in New Jersey. Right. And, and that's what it meant. And, and to a certain extent, every case involving religious freedom since 1947 has somehow been a commentary on this wall of separation and blacks' use of it. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I think fair? that's fair. There's a whole series of cases, you know, in, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, you know, some of them um, like Engel versus Vitali are well known. That's the school prayer one. Uh, the key one, thinking about this language uh, more recently, is Lemon, the Lemon decision in 1971. 
where the court said, actually, the, the wall isn't really a wall. It's kind of a blurry, it's porous. It's a screen door. It's kind of, <laughs> you know, because they were, you know, what they had found in, in the previous decade is they're trying to actually sort of figure out where this wall is. It's really tricky, you know, and they were drawing all kinds of fine distinctions like, you know, about is it okay if you have religious instructions in schools? No. Is it okay if it's religious instruction that's like right outside of school during lunch? Is that okay? Maybe. You know, and, or and prayer in prayer school. schools and what's the prayer look like and who writes the prayer can you know, all these kinds of stuff. They 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 were they spent a lot of time uh, you know, in, in the fifties and sixties trying to sort of figure out where this wall was and, and Lemon they said like there there isn't the wall is is is, is porous and they said this test about you know to try to sort of ascertain okay where where exactly the intersection of the state um and religion works and where it doesn't work um and i think that's sort of the, the legal standard that's largely still in effect today in terms of of trying to figure out uh you know can the state support various kinds of religious practices or or not and where where that wall or or blurry fence might be. We've got a kind of paradoxical situation here, David, because uh, in thinking about this, and whenever I teach this, it's an interesting paradox emerges, which is, of course, that the United States, uh, compared to most other advanced industrial democracies, uh, religi- religiosity is off the charts compared to, its, compared to the UK, for example. We are sitting in a place with state churches, Mm. <laughs> and state-supported religious schools. Yes, yeah. and and yet, and these would be illegal in the United States. Yet we are sitting in a in a in a city and a country um, that is far more secular, probably, yeah. than much of the United States. So we have this kind of paradox here. We also have the uh, the, the other great republic of the of the of the era, which has separation of church and state, is France. Yet France's religious history is very, very different because religion is often so culturally based. Mm. Uh, and so we have this kind of paradox. We're arguing about whether there should be prayer in school and things like that. They've got religious education. I mean, your kids would have had yeah. it in school in Scotland. Mine certainly did. And uh, there's prayer. Um, and and, and, and Christmas see. services kinds of stuff. Right, and, yeah. Yet it seems to wash over people and doesn't make much impact. Whereas in the United States, there's this nonstop churn about these issues. Mm. And I wonder if that partially contributes to the religiosity of the of the United States. Because there's a constant debate about where the boundary is. We don't have that debate here. Yeah, let me, for the let, most part, right. Yeah, for, they, for the yeah, most yeah, part. Yeah. For the most part. Uh, I mean, there's a, or let me put a counter view. By taking state support away from churches, and this is an argument that my friend Peter Odefis makes. Mm. I've taken it from him, but it's influenced me. By taking support away from state churches, uh, sorry, taking state support away from churches in the United States in the 1780s and 90s and by the early decades of the 19th century, you get this competition that coincides with the rise of the market economy for souls Hmm. so churches become businesses effectively i mean it's not quite that simple but in order to survive they have to attract people and so they become aggressive this is the age of jackson this is this is the rise of the market economy all that 
Well, you have the rise of all pamphlets and right, stuff, right, right. which yeah, are yeah. advertising. Yeah, which yeah. yeah, I mean, it's mass market. It's all this stuff, and and so you end up with a religious life that's very vibrant. Hmm. We get all kinds of diversity. We get the, the emergence of the LDS Church. We get all kinds of uh, the proliferation of different denominations. We get all kinds of interesting American religious history in the nineteenth hmm. century is really interesting. There's a lot going on. Where if we'd had sleepy, staid state churches that people paid their taxes for, they would have gradually ignored them and we would have just become, and the United States would have developed like Western Europe. Do you think that's true? Sorry, slightly off topic, but this is a consequence yeah, of all yeah, this. Yeah, no, that's a very, it is an interesting you know, distinction because the United States, as you point out, is has much higher rates of, of both church going and people who identify as, as, as religious as being part of their fundamental identity than in, in most of Europe. Um, and I think that the, that sort of evangelical sort of free market moment is, is part of it. I think there's clearly a, a, a moment in, in the 19, thinking more recently, in, in the 1950s as part of the Cold War in which the United States is um, positioning itself as a, a religious nation as as an opposition to godless communism right, all work against godless you know communism. and and just thinking about when when you know uh the pledge of allegiance gets under god added to it in the 1950s to thinking about those that moment as being a place where you have a sort of a rise of 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 a certain kind of american religiosity it's tied to american patriotism um that you still see very present in, in certain uh, kinds of american religious manifestations um, you know, we've been talking a lot about, about the impact of the state upon religion. Um, but I think, you know, part of what the issue is with Biden and, and, and communion in the Catholic Church right now is about the religion's impact upon the state. And I think there's also some interesting things that are we need to discuss there. One is uh, the Johnson Amendment from 1954. Uh, this was a amendment to the... To the uh, tax code uh, pushed by then Senator uh, Lyndon Johnson that prohibited nonprofits from endorsing or opposing uh, political candidates, which meant all nonprofits, including churches, which in the United States are labeled as tax exempt organizations. Uh, what that meant was that churches could not, if they wanted to maintain their tax exempt status, Tell their congregants who to vote for. You couldn't have a minister on Sunday morning saying, don't vote for candidate X, do vote for candidate Y, because candidate Y is a man of God and candidate X is a... Devil worshiper. Exactly. Uh, you know, whatever it is you want to do. So so that the Johnson Amendment said that, which I think is an interesting place of, of trying to sort of... Uh, about the separation of, of, of church and state. Because one of the, the things that's happened since then is there's been some really significant pushback against the Johnson Amendment by religious leaders who say, look, this is impinging upon our religious freedom. We should be able to tell our congregants who to vote for. Um, and, you know, for instance, Donald Trump in 2016 said um, during the campaign that one of the things he wanted to do was kill the Johnson Amendment because he said religious leaders should be able to participate in politics as actively as uh, anybody else does, 
Well, oh. Trump was, of course, one of the deeper religious thinkers to occupy <laughs> the presidency. Really, since, two Corinthians, right? Since Jefferson, yeah. <laughs> two Corinthians walk into a bar. Um, <laughs> oh man! Um, but but actually, so, sorry. Uh, joking aside, what Trump was recognizing was the power of the evangelical vote in his constituency. Mm. Um, so, so so you know. Choking aside about his theological awareness, he he did understand politics, or he does understand uh, his own coalition. Yes, right. Yeah, and there had been a movement among evangelicals in sort of the decade prior to Trump's uh, candidacy that had, that was calling very loudly for the repeal of the Johnson Amendment. Now there are people on the other side who say maybe we should repeal the Johnson Amendment, but we should also then repeal the tax exempt status of American churches, um, because if they're going to behave in political ways, and and clearly. Uh, Many churches do behave in political ways, even if they don't label it as, as inherently political. And the situation with uh, President Biden and, and communion is, is one example of that. Then they should just be taxed like any other organization that, that does similar kinds of things. Um, and so there's, a, there's, a both, there's an argument on both sides for, for, for reconsidering that, that moment. Um, What do you think is going to happen with yeah, the, the, the Catholic Church is still sort of considering all this? What, what is the effect that this is going to have either upon the Catholic Church, upon American politics, upon, you know, what's the next steps here? Uh, you know, what? same as it ever was in the sense that we'll, we'll continue to have a culture war about this. What's emerged in the United States, I think, and I, I don't think this is healthy, hmm. and I, nor do I think it's entirely accurate, but I think there's now a belief that the majority of people of faith uh, certainly Christians of all denominations, including Catholics, are conservative and Republican-leaning. This is not true. It's mm. not how people vote. But the, 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 institutionally, that, 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 the, the, there, there is a perception. And therefore, people who are unchurched or non-believers, which are actually the fastest growing group in the United States, uh, are on the left and vote Democratic. Um, I, I'm, what we're seeing is a hardening of yet another front in the cultural war mm. that, as often happens with these issues, doesn't actually accurately reflect, the, the, the kind of stereotype doesn't accurately reflect what's happening because religious belief and political belief don't map so easily in the mm. United States. There are left-wing people of faith. There are right, there are conservatives of no faith. Etc. Libertarians, for example, are often strong advocates of the separation of church and state. Um, so, 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 I'm babbling a little bit in answer to your question: of What do I mm. think is going to happen? I think, you know, the, I think the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops is pretty explicitly um, political, and, and the position it takes is for a particular um, brand, both of Catholicism and politics, mm. that doesn't necessarily represent the whole church. Yes, I think 70% of American Catholics support abortion rights. Right. So, so people a... in the pews on Sundays don't necessarily... And people... What would happen... I honestly don't know. When Joe Biden goes to Mass and goes to communion, mm. will he be denied communion? Well, the, 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 right, the right now, the, the, the based on something from John Paul II, what happens is, is that the person who gets to decide whether somebody gets communion or not is the local bishop. So right now, the Bishop of D.C. has said, I'm fine with Biden getting communion. Uh, my understanding is is um, Delaware is just about to get a new bishop, so it's unclear what's going on there. Uh, but if the 
conference on Catholic bishops makes this decision, they're going to have to go to the Pope and get the Pope to approve. So yeah, there's I all mean, kinds of complicated uh, yeah, internal I'm, 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 Sorry, stuff. sorry. I, I realize I, I put it in terms of what would happen if Biden gets communion, but I'm thinking uh, more generally. It's, you know, the, 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 the whole basis of Christianity is that man or humanity is flawed mm. and, and sins and needs forgiveness and salvation. Sure. Well, that would include Joe Biden and not just on that issue. So, so I, I, I think it's an untenable position, mm. but they're, they're, they're playing politics. I mean, they're making a statement. This to is, be sure. This is, this is gesture politics more than anything. Um, and and I, so, so I don't think it will necessarily matter, mm. um, except that it's yet more evidence of this kind of ossification of the lines in the culture war. It feels yeah. like the culture war is becoming like the First World War. We're in our trenches now, and gains are incremental or non-existent. And this is yet another trench. I think I think that's that's exactly right. Um, you know, people have, have postulated about sort of the timing of when you know the final version of, of the Conference of Catholic Bishops report is going to come out, and it's going to be you know during the the twenty two midterm camp, campaign, and what effect that may or may not have. Um, you know, there are 70 million Catholics in, in the United States of a range of political views. Um, you know, we've got liberal Catholics like Biden, like Nancy Pelosi. We've got, you know, majority people on the Supreme Court now are Catholics. Yep. And that includes both the most conservative and the, the most liberal members of the court. Well, to some extent, the court better reflects the, the, the spectrum of American Catholicism than, than almost anything else. Yes. I mean, but But... Yeah, so so I, 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 I look, there are some people who are single issue voters and for whom abortion really is the only issue and the mm. only important issue. Those people didn't vote for Biden. To be sure. And I don't think they'll vote for people who are perceived as supporting Biden in 2022 or if Biden is renominated in 2024. I, you know, these, yeah, but, but I, I don't, this is, as I say, gesture politics, I think. It, it, it bespeaks. A not terribly healthy body, um, body politic. I'll say that, but it's yet, it's yet, you know, it's example number a thousand of that. <laughs> All right. On on that note, uh, it's time for your last drops. What did you got, Frank? Well, I want to congratulate our friend uh, and friend of the pond, Annette Gordon Reed, uh, who we've discussed in the past. Um, Annette is gave the twenty twenty one Fennel lecture here at the University of Edinburgh, but uh, and she's a professor at Harvard. Uh, her new book on Juneteenth is wonderful, and if you're interested in the Juneteenth holiday, that's a great place to start. But uh, the, the Conroe Independent School District in Conroe, Texas, which is Annette's hometown, has announced that they're going to name an, uh, an elementary school, a primary school after her, uh, that's going to open next year. That's and great. It, it is great. I mean, Annette's a wonderful person, and this is a, she's won the Pulitzer Prize, but I believe this is the greatest accolade she's achieved. Um, because Not least because if you read her book, which is a part, part memoir, uh, it talks about her experience um, desegregating an elementary school in that town. And so the fact they're going to name a primary school after her and her mother was a teacher is just wonderful. It's good news. It's good it's wonderful. news. Yeah. Now, my, my great question is, that that's great. What are the mascots going to be for this school? Can we have <laughs> them to be the, the Annette Gordon-Reed historians versus the, you know, next town over's Eagles uh, or something? I... <laughs> I, I think that would be great. I think that would teach kids that historians can be heroic and athletic <laughs> and things. 
And I say that I, I went to a high school where the mascot was the judges because yeah, the school's I mean, after judges. But elementary schools don't tend to have mascots. Oh, sure they do. They tend to be like the Eagles or the Lions or whatever it is, right? right. And so I think the historians. I think that's got. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fighting historians. The fighting historians. Yeah. Okay. Well, historians do fight. fight exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right. Well. Let's... <laughs> I'm sure they'll take that under advisement, David. If you are on the Conway like school board, just listen. I think it's a great idea that you will get. If you want guest speakers to come to your school, you can get any historian you want if, if that's your mascot. Right. Um, What's your last drop, David? I want to endorse uh, two things. Uh, one is an interview that I read in The Guardian with uh, the sons of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Oh, right. Um, How old are they? They, they are... Pretty old. They're, they're in there. I think they're 70s or 80s. Um, it's a really sort of fascinating story. Obviously, the, the Rosenbergs for, uh, were convicted uh, of espionage in the 1950s and, and, and uh, executed. Uh, and it's about, you know, the interview is about the lives of, the, of their two sons, their, their thoughts about their, all the things that happened to them after they were subsequently adopted uh, and, and the various thoughts they've had about their parents, how various revelations about uh, uh, Cold War espionage have informed the ways they thought about their parents and, and how their parents may or may not have been uh, spies for the Soviet Union. But it's really sort of a fascinating uh, interview thinking about sort of the sort of long-term effects and how even these events that we think of as long ago have, have, have residents today. Really sort of a great uh, family story. Another interesting family story I want to recommend, uh, Radio Lab is doing a, a mini-series called The Vanishing of Harry Pace. I had never heard of Harry Pace before I started this, and I think they're in part two of three or four parts of this uh, mini-series. Um, but, and I'm not going to spoil it, but it's a very interesting, again, sort of family story where there's a hidden secret family story that has deep connections to the history of segregation and desegregation in the United States and, and identity and race and all kinds of important things. Uh, and, and it's a, a thoughtful uh, and important uh, miniseries worth listening to. Excellent. Great. Until next week. Cheers, Cheers, Dave. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod, and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.